The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles now and go to the book of John, the Gospel of John, and chapter 1. We're going to teach for the next three Wednesday evenings messages on grace. And um, it's a subject I love to talk about. I love, I love to study the, the depth of, and the matchless grace of God. But we're going to talk tonight, we're going to study the great, beginning with the grace of God by looking tonight at, at the majesty of grace. So if you would, please look with me at John chapter 1, and you don't, need to, um, you don't need to stand, but let's read together, beginning at verse number, number 1, if you would. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now that, that right there, folks, is something uh, children today aren't learning. They're not being taught that. If, if a child is fortunate enough to be in a Sunday school class, they are being taught that. But for children who don't go to church, for children who aren't fortunate enough to be in a Sunday school class, they are not taught what we just read. They are taught that they are, that their great, 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 great grandfather was a comet. And that, uh, that they just evolved from single-celled organisms. And, and this is what children are being taught. It's no wonder today why so many young people have no respect for anything, no light, no respect for life, no respect for anyone else. Let's read on. Verse 3, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. And of course, by all men here, we're not talking about every man that was ever born. We're talking about men of every, of every nation, uh, those that God has called into repentance, the elect saints of God. Um, let's read on. Um, verse 8, he was not that light, but was uh, sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 15, John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. Verse 17, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word that we've had the privilege tonight to read. And, and Father, that we've been given the privilege by 
virtue of your Holy Spirit to understand and to comprehend and to receive. Thank you, Father, for this time. Now we pray that the teaching would be in in your power and would be uh, unto your purpose. And we pray that uh, each of us would be edified by what we hear tonight. And we'll praise you and we thank you for these things. For you are worthy of all glory and honor. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Majesty of Grace. First Chronicles chapter 29, verses 10 and 11, we read, Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation. And David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. God is a majestic God. He is an awesome and powerful and awe-inspiring creator. Grace. It's a beautiful word, is it not, really, if you think about it? Tonight, we will begin a study into the tremendous depth of the grace of God. Unfortunately, we will not finish this study. We'll never finish this study until we see Christ face to face. But we will begin the study tonight and continue it for two weeks into the depth of the grace of God. The first thing we will need to do is is to define grace. Uh, Before we could ever hope to understand it, we must first know what it is. Now, as according to Christian theology, grace is the free and unmerited favor or beneficence of God. Uh, also, it's defined as a state of sanctification accomplished by God. Now, from both of these definitions, it is clear to see that grace is from and is given by God. In John chapter 1 and verse 17, we read it just a moment ago, for the law was given by Moses, but grace grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, we read, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift. See that word, gift of God. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 2, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. In scripture, we will typically see a contrast drawn between the law and grace. Uh, again, in John, first, in first, in John chapter 1, verse 17, law came, according to scripture, the law came by who? By Moses. Now, the law didn't actually come by Moses. Uh, it, it, was, it came through Moses, but it was by God uh, that the law was made. But the law came by Moses, but grace, according to verse 17, came by who? By Jesus Christ. Uh, Consequently, the contrasts made between law and grace are these. The law demands righteousness from man. I didn't, these were afterthoughts after I'd printed out your study sheets. uh, You might want to jot these down if you feel like it. If not, it won't bother me any. But I do think they are somewhat Important. They, they were actually opinions of a very prominent theologian named Schofield. Schofield said the, the, the law demands righteousness from man, while grace imparts righteousness to man by Christ Jesus. So you see, the law demands that you be righteous. Can you be righteous? Can you be righteous? 
Now, the Bible says that wickedness is continually dies in the heart of man. But grace imparts righteousness to man by Christ. The law blesses only when we do good. While grace saves us, even when we were in sin. Another contrast, the law centers on the works of man. While grace is founded in our faith. And another contrast, under the law, blessings must be earned. By the law, you, don't, you, you have to earn your blessing by, by, by works, by doing good. But under grace, gifts are freely given by God. Now, all of us here this evening, as I look out among you, I, I believe you all to be born-again believers. All of us here this evening, we understand the principle of saving grace, do we not? We all understand that by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we all know and understand that it's simply by God's grace that we are that we are elected, it's simply by his grace that we are called, it's simply by his grace that we are quickened and saved. But it is my experience that the majority of believers do not fully grasp and understand the principles of the grace for living. We understand, we understand saving grace. You go, to, you go to anyone who claims to be saved and to ask them about saving grace, and they'll say, oh, yeah, and you know, they'll tell you all about it. But what about the grace we need for living? What about the grace for life? Now, that's where a lot of Christians fall short. They don't understand that. They, they believe that God saved us by grace, but now he's left us in a, in a field all alone and said, okay, now let me see how you, how you fare by yourself. But that's not the way it works. That's not what has been done. We not only have grace unto salvation, but God has given us grace for living, for our everyday life. And it is so important that we understand this. Grace for living is the advantage given to the believer by God in order to satisfy, listen to me carefully, in order to satisfy the expectations of God's justice as they pertain to our life. Everybody understand that? There are certain expectations. God just, God's justice has certain demands, and there are certain things that God's justice expects from every child of God. And those are things that you and I in our flesh, in our, in our sinful nature, those are things that you and I just cannot accomplish. We can't do it. In other words, it is God enabling us. Grace is God enabling us to do what we cannot do. In other words, holiness. We're commanded, are we not? We're commanded to be holy. We're commanded, be ye holy as your Father which is in heaven is holy. Can you accomplish that? I can't. I don't care how hard I try, I can't accomplish that. But God's grace is the enabling for us to live under the, under the blood of Christ in holiness. That's his grace. Uh, grace is, is, 
is doing what we cannot do when it comes to righteousness, when it comes to overcoming temptations. Without the grace of God, do you believe for one moment you could overcome temptations? If you do, you're deceiving yourself. If you do, you, you think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Because all of us are subject to the like passions. And Christ was also subject to those passions yet without sin. And it is by, by God's grace that we're able to, to, that we're enabled to do these things. Paul himself stated that the things he should do, he could not do. And the things he should not do, those are the things he did do, didn't he? He said that in scripture. He further stated that it was the grace of God that made him what he was. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul stated, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's what Paul said. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. We need to understand tonight that if it were not for the grace of God, none of us, none of us would be in this room. We would not have, we would not have taken the time tonight to come to church. And, and that's, why, that's why it troubles me so much when God's people don't come to church. Because do you understand do you understand the, the privilege you have, the grace that God has given you? And for us to put that grace of God underfoot and push it aside and say it's just not important. It's not important for me to be in Sunday school. It's not important for me to be in church on Wednesday night. It's not important for me to go back on Sunday night. What a disgrace. What a shame it is to put the grace of God underfoot and just step on it. Like it's just some some filth that doesn't deserve any, any, any consideration at all. Now tonight, I want us to examine the majesty, the majestic greatness of this thing that we call grace. Now, the majesty of God's grace, first, letter A on your study sheets, is seen in the plan of grace. It's seen in the plan of grace. Romans chapter 3 Verses 23 through 25, we read, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Did you see that there right in, the, right in the first verse that we read, or the second verse that we read? Being justified freely by his grace. God has set forth, he's planned that Christ would be the propitiation or the substitute for our sins. Propitiation is defined as the atonement or atoning sacrifice offered to God to assuage, and that word assuage means satisfy, to assuage his wrath and render him propitious or favorable to sinners. So we see that by becoming our substitute, 
We have been we have been saved by the grace of God. We've been justified by his grace. And God had planned to extend his grace unto those whom he has called. These are they that were chosen in him from the foundation of the world. Now, most, most people who profess to be believers would agree with me up to that last statement I just made. Up to the one where I said they were, that those that he's called are those that were chosen in him from the foundation of the world. They argue, well, if God chose some men to be saved, then he must have chose some men to be, to be condemned to hell. But that's not true. That's not true because if you remember back in Romans 3.23, we read, for all have sinned. All men are condemned. All men are, are, are bound to hell. And if God does not choose to save some, then all men are lost. But God has made that, that choice. He's made that distinction. In Ephesians chapter 1, we read from verses 2 through verse 4, Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Yes, we were chosen in Christ before God created man. Before he created anything, we were chosen. Now, I don't know why. I don't understand it. I really don't. I don't know why God chose me. I wouldn't have chosen me. So I don't, but I don't know why he did. And you know something else? I'm really not worried about why he chose me. I'm just glad he chose me. Amen? <laughs> I, I don't know why and I don't know how. I don't know what, what he used as a, as a reason what he used as a distinction, but I just, I'm just grateful and thankful and praise God that I was chosen and called by God unto redemption. And you should feel the same way. Why should we argue and fight over the why or the how? Just be glad for the what. The truth would, the, this truth that God has created, uh, chosen us before he created man, this truth would negate the idea that salvation rests in man's coming to an understanding of or submission to God by his own awareness. And it, it rather supports the truth that salvation exists only in the specific plan and determinate will of God. This deliberate planning of God demonstrates his absolute sovereignty over all matters of faith and redemption. If salvation is not by the sovereign will of God, then grace cannot be considered under the sole control of God. And, and you know, rejection to this, to this principle, rejection to this doctrine is typical for an entitlement-based society. It's, it's so typical for people who feel like they're entitled to everything someone else is entitled to. That they deserve the same thing everybody else deserves. And a generation of, of, of young people who grew up in, a, in an educational system that, that basically denies God and denies absolute right and wrong, they determine in their minds that they're, as, they're just as, as equally right to, 
They have as much right to, to make a choice whether they want to believe God or not as anybody else does. Truth of the matter is, we don't. If salvation, as I said, is not by the sovereign will of God, then grace cannot be considered under the sole control of God. There would need to be an additional avenue for grace, apart from God's determinate plan and his sovereign will, and an additional avenue whereby redeeming grace would be bestowed upon men. Now, this errant line of doctrine can only leave us with the conclusion that the bestowment of God's grace, then, would be dependent upon man's actions and not solely upon God's sovereign will. There's no other rationale you can come to. If God's, if God's will and salvation is not sovereign, if grace is not by his sole authority, then my salvation would not depend upon God. It would depend upon what I do. Not what Jesus did, but what I do. In other words, Jesus' death on the cross only, only, paid ha- only, only went halfway, and I would have to finish the course myself. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus said it is finished because it was finished. And Jesus didn't die on the cross so you, could, so you might be able to be saved. Jesus died on the cross so the elect children of God would be redeemed and would be saved. I've heard it stated God chose not to redeem the fallen angels. So if this were true, then why would God not have the same sovereign choice over man? Why would God not have a right to choose not to redeem fallen men? After all, man was created lower than the angels, wasn't he? According to scripture, Hebrews 2.9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. And it is important here to note that the phrase every man at the end of verse 9 is not intended to mean mean all of created man. In fact, the word man was not even included in the original text. Now, I'm preaching out of a King James. The only book I study out of is the King James. The only Bible I read is the King James. So if you're a King James proponent, don't get mad at me for saying that there's a word in there that wasn't in the original text, but it wasn't. The word man found um, at the end of Hebrews 2.9 was not in the original text. It was the Greek huperthayer, which is correctly transliterated on behalf of the whole. And that was the original context. That Jesus tasted death on behalf of the whole, on behalf of all of the elect. Taken in context with the entire passage, we see every man to mean on behalf of all the elect. In Hebrews chapter 2, the very next verses, 10 through 13, we read, For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings for both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren saying I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee and again I will put my trust in him and again behold I and the children which God hath given me. Now since we know that all men are not saved it cannot be concluded that Christ tasted death 
for all men. Would God be so uninformed and, and so, dare I say, foolish as to give his life, to shed his precious blood for men who would reject him and die in their sins? Do you honestly, in your mind and your heart, do you honestly believe God would be so uninformed, so unaware of what was happening, that he would shed his blood for a man who would reject him? What he did was to taste death for the whole of his body of believers, the elect of God. And this was in accordance to the will of God, according to his foreknowledge and purpose in eternity past. And all of this confirms that grace is the result of God's planning and purpose. So first tonight, it proves the majesty of God's grace. We see the majesty of God's grace in the plan of grace. But then secondly, letter B... The majesty of God's grace is seen in the provision of grace. Not only the planning, and when we look at the plan, we cannot help but see the majesty of God's sovereign will. But secondly, in the provision. (coughs) Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we read, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. But hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me, according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, mine own son, after the common faith. Grace, there's that word, mercy and peace, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now what good is a plan if you cannot put it into effect? Paul told Titus that God promised eternal life before the world began. Well, well just, just suppose that God did leave it up to man to decide whether he wanted to be saved or not. And, and just suppose nobody chooses, which, by the way, without God's intervention, no one would. Then what good is God's promise? What good is his word? He can't even bring his promise to pass. You ever make a promise and it's something you just can't carry out? You ever do that? Makes, it, makes you, it makes people lose confidence in you. It makes people lose trust in you. It makes you, it, it makes you ashamed. You think God would stand here and say, I promise, I promise eternal life, and then not be able to provide it? What good would be served by Christ's death at Calvary if God could not provide the grace for which he died? The majesty or the authority, if you will, of grace is seen in God's ability to provide this grace to those whomsoever he determines to redeem. Again, we go back to the fact that if salvation rests on the subordinate will of man and not the sovereign choice of God, then the provision of grace would also need to rest on the subordinate will of man and not the specific action of God, would it not? How many of you would agree with what I just said? How many of you don't understand what I just said? Let's read it one more time. If salvation rests on the subordinate will of man and not on the sovereign choice of God, then the provision of grace would also need to rest on the subordinate will of man and not on the specific action of God. In other words, Jesus' death on the cross was just a, a ways to, a, to an end. 
a means to an end. That's all it would be. It wouldn't be propitious. It, it wouldn't be determinate. It would simply be a key to a door. That's all it was. Just, just a key that would unlock a door. That's all it would be. I can't, I can't uh, accept that. I can't possibly believe that. In other words, grace would be relevant to man's spiritual condition. So I get up one morning and I, I suddenly become self-aware of, of, of my sin or my wrong in my life and God. And, and I decide, okay, God, I'm, I'm ready to come to you. But what is man's spiritual condition, by the way? <coughs> in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, we read, What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have been, we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Now, this places all of us under the penalty of sin, which, by the way, is death. And unsaved men are all spiritually dead. And the only way to return from being dead is to be made alive again. And only those whom he has chosen and called will he make alive by grace through Christ Jesus. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. You know, without exception, everyone I talk to, when they share their salvation testimony, they they all, every one of them, all say the same thing. They say, it's just like a light came on. It's like a switch. And all of a sudden, I just... I awoke. Huh? How many of you, that would be your salvation testimony? Huh? How many of you? Raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. You know why? Because a, a switch was thrown. A light came on. And you were suddenly awakened to the truth. You were dead. Spiritually dead. And dead people stay dead. Unless... Some force acts upon them to bring them back to life, right? I mean, when you're, on a, when you're on an operating table and you're dead and the doctor says, we're calling it, that's it, he's dead. They don't walk out the room and then you just sit up and say, oh, hey, that was interesting. Uh, that doesn't happen. Not unless you weren't really dead to begin with. We were dead and God made us alive. You... Being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him, having forgive you all trespass, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And it is God that provides the grace to you and I. So the majesty of grace is seen in God's planning, and it's seen in God's provision. But then, lastly tonight, let her see... The majesty of God's grace is seen in the perseverance, perseverance of grace. Excuse me. In Titus chapter 2, we begin in verse 11. 
For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Now, I've got to be careful there because I remember several years back a youth conference where the main theme was be a weirdo for Christ. And uh, I tell you what, a lot of those young people fit the bill. Uh, that's not what he means. When he, says, when, he, when he says a peculiar people, it's because God's people love him. God's people live for him. God's people don't lie. They don't steal. They don't cheat. They're peculiar. In, in a world full of sinners, they're peculiar people. Now, I'm not saying that anyone who's God's child never tells a lie. And I'm not saying that anyone who's God's children never ever cheats on anything. But what I'm saying is that doesn't, that doesn't represent our life. It's not who we are. We're a peculiar people. And we're zealous under good works. We're excited and we're anxious to do things to serve the Lord. Notice the words of Paul in verse 14 again, where he states, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. From this statement, I must surmise that Christ fully intends to make good on his promise to redeem me and give me eternal life. Now, I am certain today that all of us believe in the security of the believer John wrote in 1 John 5.13, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And the last clause in this verse, that ye may believe, is in the future perfect tense. Now, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you an, an English lesson here, a grammar lesson, so listen carefully. It's in the future tense of the verb, and it denotes continued action. You know, a lot of people don't understand this in the English language. And often uh, things are brought to me to proofread and I read and someone will say something like, well, we will be having uh, a potluck. Well, you don't need to say we will be having because that's the future perfect tense, which means you're going to have it from now on. What you'd say is we will have. It's, you simplify the verb. You don't take it to the future perfect tense. And, and here... Uh, God makes no mistakes in his word. And he wrote this in the future perfect tense. Uh, it denotes continued action. In other words, paraphrase this would read, and that ye may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, forever. God will make good on his promises. He will redeem us as he promised. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, we read, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Paul was confident of this thing, and he fully believed God's promise and report. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, he writes, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, 
and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Now, over the years, I've heard some people say, well, he has fallen from grace. But is this true concerning the grace that we have from God? In Galatians 5, 4, we read, Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Now, take heed here, lest a great heresy take hold of your heart. We cannot possibly believe that a saved man can fall from grace if we profess to believe in the security of the believer. So what is Paul trying to say here? Well, if we had to do is go to Galatians chapter 5 and back up to verse 1. Let's all go to Galatians chapter 5 together. Galatians chapter 5. And we've got to go back to verse 1 to fully understand exactly what Paul is talking about. If we go to verse 1, we read, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So we see here um, what he is saying is that when we claim to be saved by grace, yet maintain a faith that depends upon the law, then we have no grace at all. It is a false profession of grace. You know, there are a lot of people out there who claim to be saved, but they don't, they're, not, they're not resting in grace. They're still living in the law. And while some of those may continue to live in the law out of an ignorance of grace, which is why I'm going through all of this, and I hope you understand that, some may, some may, may, may be under grace and yet fail to understand grace, so they continue to live under the law, but there are those that are not under grace at all, but profess to be under grace, but they live under the law. And here Paul is saying, you've fallen from the grace you claim to have. You can't fall from God's grace, but you can fall from a false profession of grace, can you not? It is a false profession of grace. Paul is stating the same thing we've been saying all evening. And that is that grace is bestowed upon those whom God has chosen. And unto those whom he has chosen, grace is beyond their reach. In John chapter 10, verses 25 through 28, we read, Jesus answered them, I told you and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. So to those whom God has not chosen, to those whom God has not elected unto salvation, grace is beyond their comprehension. It's beyond their reach. They'll never understand grace because grace is something that is not understandable, is not comprehensible, comprehensible for natural man. But to we that are the sheepfold of Christ, our redemption is secure. The grace that God has bestowed upon us cannot be taken away and it will not fail us. Grace given by God perseveres. It does not fail. It cannot fail. And this is why we can stand and so boldly say as Paul did in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 19. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ 
according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Only someone who fully comprehends and understands the grace for living that we have from God, the grace that he has given us to live our everyday life unto his glory and, his, and unto his honor, only a child of God with full comprehension of that can make so bold a statement. God's grace. It is more than we can ever hope to fully understand. But let me say tonight, let us remember the majesty of the grace he's bestowed upon us. When you talk about the grace, when you talk about grace, when you pray and you thank God for his grace, when you, when you comprehend grace, do you understand how wonderful it is? Do you understand how majestic it is? Do you understand, do you realize that it was seated? It was planned. It was, it was organized by God the Father that, that is provided. The provision of that grace is through him alone through his sovereign power, through his sovereign will, and that it is persevering, that it'll never fall, it'll never fail. The grace God has given you is sufficient. That's what he told Paul. Remember Paul went to God and prayed for relief from his, from his affliction, and God told Paul, you don't need, Paul, all you need, my grace is all you need. My grace is sufficient for you. So when we're in a bind, when we face trials, when we face trouble, when we face disappointment, what do we do? We look for relief, don't we? We look for answers. We look for solutions. We look for, we look for anything we can grab. But God says, child, I've given you my grace. I've enabled you to endure. I've enabled you to overcome. I've given you my promises. All you need is that. You don't need anything else. My grace is sufficient for thee. You see why I said earlier that I believe that most people, the vast majority, I'd say 90% or more of those who claim to profess salvation, understand saving grace. They do. They understand. But do they fully understand the depth of the grace of God? Do they understand grace for a living? That's where I think sometimes we fall. So tonight we, we've looked at the majesty of grace. Now next week we're going to look at the magnitude. Next Wednesday evening we're going to study the magnitude of God's grace. And I pray you come. And not only you come, but talk to those other in the church and tell them, listen, we need to hear this. And not because I'm teaching it, by the way, because there's a lot of people who could stand up here and teach it much better than me. And I'm not just saying that to, to, to say it. I, I believe that. But this is, this is a, a series of lessons. I actually taught this series of lessons to the teenagers about maybe seven or eight years ago. And I believe God gave me that series then, and I believe he wants me to teach it again now. So let's come and let's, but, but as, we, as we tarry over the next week, let us every day wake up, take a moment and, and just think about 
the grace of God. He's given you everything you need. There is nothing else you need. He told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. And, and God's grace is sufficient for me and it's sufficient for you in this day. We need to open our eyes and understand that God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. And we say that so glibly. Oh, God is in control. But we don't believe it in our hearts. And the reason I say we don't believe it in our hearts is because we don't live like we believe it. If you honestly believe that God is in control of everything, then you would, you would dedicate your entire life to pleasing him. You wouldn't dare take one moment of your life and give it to something else. So we, we don't live like we, like we believe that. So let us learn to live that way. Let us learn to live our lives for our children's sake, for our grandchildren's sake, for our, our community's sake, for God's sake. Let us live our life as if we really believe that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we have tonight. Thank you for your word. I pray, Father, that uh, I pray that what I said would have had meaning and impact, not because I said it, but because it's your word. Bless you, the preaching of your word to our hearts and minds. And then, and then Father, give us the strength we need each day to, to live in your grace. Grace for living, just to, just to lean upon you and understand that all things, all things come from you. And we praise you and thank you for this. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church. 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.